Good day, church. Good to see you. You don't know what to say when I say good day, do you? I would like to begin this last week in our series, Making Room for Life, if you don't mind, with another personal story. I mean, what choice do you have? And the reason I do is because this series has not just been a series of talks for me, but in all reality, uh, these principles have saved my life, and they have saved my family. And they have provided a good foundation for us uh, that we've been able to grow on, and we simply want to make them available to you. So I'd like to begin my story by reminding you that I grew up in an unchurched home. And what that means is that uh, my family never went to the church building, ever, and it also means that the principles that you learn in a place like this never made it to my home, and so I never had the opportunity of hearing and learning about this relationship with Christ. At the age of 14, however, a neighbor two doors down who worked with my dad invited my younger sister Teresa and I to a week-long vacation Bible school at their church, and I went, and for the first time in my life, and I know this is hard to believe growing up in America, but for the first time in my life, I not only heard the name of Jesus, but I heard why he came and what he was offering to me, and that week, I trusted Christ. I became a follower of Christ, a Christian. It was a powerful experience, and to be honest with you, there was something that was going on in my life that I really couldn't get enough of the whole thing. It wasn't just the messages, because to be honest with you, to this day I can't remember anything the guy said, which is really sad for a guy in my shoes. But there was something that was going on that drew me in. And so I wanted to be there every time the doors were open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whenever. The problem is, is the house that we had was 25 minutes away from the church building. And so at the age of 14 and 15, I had to bum a ride every time I wanted to go to the church building. And I have to tell you, I was shy, and it was a real struggle for me to do that. So I got an idea. What if on Sunday morning after the church service, I didn't go home, but I just hung out with the church mouse, you know, at the church, and uh, then waited for everyone to come back on Sunday evening? That would save me one ask. Then I even have a better idea. What if another family that lived close by the church would invite me over for dinner? That would even be better. I thought no one would take me up on that, but a family did. There was this family that lived just a few minutes away from the church, an Italian family that invited me over. And uh, every Sunday afternoon, that family gathered. A father who owned a grocery store, a mother and four children, they chowed down on some pasta. And I got invited to experience that with them. You know, not only did they have pasta on Sunday, but on Monday night they had pasta. And on Tuesday night they had pasta. And on Wednesday night, say it with me, they had Thanksgiving, no worries. They had turkey and Christmas, no worries. We have Christmas ham and birthdays, not a problem. Birthday cake and pasta. It was a wonderful experience. I remember particularly, though, the very first time that I went to their house for a Sunday afternoon dinner. The, the Italian father sat here and Italian mother sat here and their four kids sat around the table and I was invited to seat, sit at the table and I sat right here. And uh, we gathered around the table and then the father said, let's pray. Now for many of you, that's no big deal, but this is the first time in my entire life, I'm now 15 years old, that I had ever had this happen. And I didn't know what to do, to spit or to wind my watch. Man, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So I just did what everyone else did. I mimicked them. And they grabbed hands like this, and they bowed their heads, and they closed their eyes, and so did I. And then this man began to pray. The successful grocer 
prayed in a very humble way. It went something like this. Dear God, thank you for my family and all of your blessings to us. Thank you for the, t- the, uh, for the food that's on the table, which you have provided for us. Now, at that point, uh, I couldn't stand it any longer. I peaked. And the reason I peaked is because it didn't make any sense to me that a guy would thank God for the food. He owned a grocery store, for crying out loud. He probably didn't even pay for the food, just brought it on to the table and spread it out. And I, I knew where our food came from. My father worked a blue-collar job, and it was very clear my father is the one who brought that food to the table. And whatever food you put on the plate, you better eat, in honor of my dad and the hard work and the job he disliked. But this guy who owns a grocery store is thanking God for the food. That was the oddest thing to me, but I looked around at the other uh, family members, and they all had their heads still bowed and their eyes still closed, but I noticed that every one of them, particularly the children, all four of them, had a smile on their face. And that smile said to me that they loved being at that table, and they absolutely adored their father. And I remember that day saying my own prayer to God. I remember it as though it was yesterday, and yet in reality it was 34 years ago. I said, dear God, if I never get a chance to experience this as a kid with my own family, if one day I grow up and you bless me with a wife and children of my own, I want to be like that man. What I didn't know then, I now know, is the power of the experience that I had at this family's table. You see, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, Jesus said, Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. You don't have to come to a building like this with all these people to find the presence of Jesus. Two or more people can gather together at a table, and what that Italian man did that day was not just thank God for the food but he invited Jesus' presence to the table. And you know what I've discovered over all these years? When Jesus shows up, everybody in striking distance of his presence is impacted and is changed. So I felt like the best way to accomplish this new vision of mine would be to marry his oldest daughter. (laughs) And I did. And we've been married for 28 years now and we have four children of our own. But I have to confess that I lost my way. You know, life was busy for us when we got married, graduate school and and work and paying the bills. And then we started having children, which meant I had to work even harder to pay the bills. And then, as I told you in the second week of the series, we started uh, our kids in the ages of four and five and all these activities, uh, kids' sports and soccer and basketball and music lesson, tumbling and gymnastics, and we just moved faster and faster as a family. There was no time for the table. There was no time for us to gather around the table. But then I told you in that second week of this series that about 15 years in, our family life had flown by, but 15 years in, I hit a wall, a physical wall. I couldn't sleep. I mean, I couldn't sleep to save my life. And this went on for 45 days, and that sleep, that insomnia turned to panic attacks, and the panic attacks gave way to deep-seated depression 
And I finally went to my doctor, and my doctor introduced me to an idea that I later called the Hebrew Day Planner. It's basically found in the first pages of the Bible, which simply suggests that God has created a rhythm for our day. That we try to get our work, every member of the family, uh, done between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Then at 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., everybody puts their work down for the day and engages in a season of relaxing and relating with the people that God has put in your life. And then finally at 10 o'clock, give or take, uh, every member of the family tries to go to bed at the same time every night to enjoy a wonderful evening of sleep. And so out of my brokenness, I began this journey with my family, only to discover that they were ready for it long before I was. I was the holdout. So the question becomes, what does a guy do who has instantly made room for life? What does a guy do who is a classic type A workaholic do with four hours of free time seven nights a week? Before that I had not a moment of time, now I have four hours every night. What does a guy do? I'll tell you what we did. We came back to the table. In Italian the word is convivium. It's literally translated feast. That day we, tra- we, we traded fast food for slow food. Matter of fact, there was a family that was in Italy not too long ago and brought back pictures of restaurants that actually promote on their signs that they are a slow food restaurant. And they brought some pictures. Take a look at this. Look at that. Let's take a look at another one. They say, hey, if you're in a hurry, you want fast food, just pass us by because we got all the time in the world. The convivium, the feast, is gathering around a table, feasting on good food. But not only that, feasting on great conversation where there's laughter, sometimes tears, and great memories are being made. I finally discovered when I got to the table, I got to God's intended destination for me. You know, in America, we define success as the next purchase. Every one of you probably has in mind that next thing you're going to buy as soon as you uh, get enough money. But you know, in other places in the world, like Italy and Mediterranean Europe, they define success as an evening meal with family and friends. You know, for me, I like their definition better than ours. The convivium. At the time we made this transition, our daughter Jennifer was already 13 years old, David was 10, Stephen was 8, and our youngest son Austin was 5. And I thought what we would do uh, to kind of share with you what's happened to us over the last 13 years as we rediscovered the convivium is to have my family come up, and we'll tell you a few things that we've done, and hopefully you can take some notes and take it home with you. So welcome my family to the table. Uh, first of all, I want you to, uh, if you haven't met Roseanne, this is my Italian wife, Rosanna. And uh, this is our youngest son, Austin, who was five at the time. And this is our son, David. Our daughter, Jennifer, uh, is in Dallas today. So her part is being played by Gretchen Mahan, who is my uh, son's girlfriend. And uh, the part of Stephen is being played by Josh Bradshaw, who is one of our uh, Pays apprentices, who's been at my house enough for dinner that he knows exactly what's going to happen here. <laughs> we're, uh, we're 24 fans, and uh, not, not that that's a good show, but we've gotten ourselves hooked on it. And so he's been over the last three weeks to eat all of our food and share the meal with us. So he's going to play the part of it. Now, the very, we're going to share five principles. The first principle is one table. 
As a matter of fact, we took this table out of storage. This is the table 13 years ago we began to experience the richness of what it means to come around the table. So we brought it out of storage. And one table means that there are no TV trays, there's no TV on, there's no cell phones, there's not a little table for the kids. We all gather around one table. Many a nights over these last 13 years, we've invited other people in. There's been a time uh, when we've had a, a, a table extended here and another card table and have had 27 people around this one table. All around one table to let them know that they belong and have a seat with us. You know, I have an observation to make. Our dining rooms are way too small today, and our master bathrooms are way too big. I mean, you think about it with me. Help me, help me out here, okay? The room that needs to invite lots of people in is too small today. The room, and I don't know about you, but when I'm in the bathroom, I like to be in there alone, okay? Can fit up to 30 to 40 people. We are messed up in the head here as Americans. So principle number one is one table. Roseanne's gonna share with you principle number two. Hello. <laughs> Principle number two is family style over buffet. Now, as a hostess who likes to entertain, I um, get the idea that the buffet is easier. Everybody fixes their own plates, goes through a line. But what typically happens with the buffet is um, the people who go through the line first have their plates ready to go and they start eating and usually it's the kids and we get them settled and by the time the adults and the last person has gone through the line what happens they're already done and they don't want to sit at the table anymore so we choose as often as we can uh, to use uh, the family style for our table um, we put all the food on the table and um, that causes us to have a, a sense of community. We have to work together to, sh to serve the food. We're passing plates. We're asking for this and asking for that. And if there's a big tray of lasagna or pasta, um, that we collect all the plates and we pass it down to the person who's sitting the closest and that person will serve up the food. Um, and this is just the way we choose to do it. So we use the family style over um, buffet. Uh, the convivium is a community, it's not an individual sport. So we have the one table, we have family style. The third thing is inviting Jesus to the table. And what we do as a family is simply grab hands and uh, we say a prayer, much like my father-in-law did the first time I ever heard it. But it's more than just thanking God for the food, it's inviting Christ to come to the table. And uh, this is not out of the scripture, but this is the way we do it. I am the one who always says the prayer at the dinner table. And the reason is very clear. It was the impact that I had when I watched my father-in-law humble himself before his family and pray. And there's something more powerful if there's a dad at the table for the dad to humble himself. Don't pass it off to kids to say a cute prayer at the dinner time. For me, it is most important for my kids to see that I honor and humble myself before the Lord. And so we pray and we invite Jesus to the table. After that, we move to stage number four. All the food has been placed on the table in our home, pasta. And uh, we have the one table, we have the family style, we've said the prayer, we've invited Jesus. And now we move to what we call the one conversation. And uh, basically what we do is we go around the table, who's ever there, if there's four people or there's 40 people, uh, we, we all share our day. And our, 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 the, the table here is set the way in, in the places that our kids sat uh, and still do to this day. And so Austin, at the age of five, was the first one who always shared his day. And to this day is the first one. And now he's going to be 18 this summer. And he has learned the art form of sharing 
his day. And since he was in kindergarten, now he's a, a finished up as a, as a junior at Bernie Champions High School, I've heard every single day in every single class he's ever gone to. It's been amazing. He's in classes now. I don't even know what the topic is all about, but he tells me about it, and it's really good. So I'm going to ask Austin uh, to share a little bit, of, kind of give you a taste, to share a little bit of a, yesterday. So it goes like this. Austin, so right. how was your day? Well, I woke up, and it was a little on the late side. It was about uh, 10 minutes before lunchtime. <laughs> but now th there is a reasoning for this. I'm just trying to follow my dad's rules. He demands that we get a great night's sleep. <laughs> so I, I am making room for life. Making room for life. That's enough. And then you just read his Bible the rest of the day. That's what preachers' kids do. <laughs> Now, at this point in the day, uh, <laughs> at this point of the day, uh, he would share the rest of his day, and then at the end, we have this little tradition where the person rates their day on a scale of one to ten. But before they rate it, he closes his eyes, and we all say, how do you think he rated his day? And we hold up our fingers, okay? Okay, everyone guesses, and we say, okay, how would you rate it? Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Oh, we round up because we're a positive family. We see the glass is half full, not half empty, even though there's nothing in it. <laughs> And so uh, he would uh, share his day. And the goal is not to have a high rating. The goal is to have an authentic rating because family is there on the bad days when you need to cry, but we're also there on the great days when you need to be celebrated. So we have this one conversation, and depending on how many people at the table, depends on how long it takes us. And then finally, we get to principle number five, and Roseanne's going to share that with you. The last and final principle of the table is probably my favorite. It's called the Festival of Cleanup. <laughs> this is something that Randy actually instituted because he saw me after our guests would leave doing dinner dishes at 10 o'clock at night when we should be getting ready to go to bed or maybe even midnight depending on how long our guests stayed. I don't think we invited them back anymore. But <laughs> the ones that stayed till midnight. But um, anyway, he instituted this to kind of help move it along. And what happens is we finish eating and we carry the dishes into the table and we just begin to clean up together. And we call it a festival because we continue our conversation. We can continue to laugh and tease each other. And sometimes um, we even put music on and if it's a worship song, we all know you'll see us singing together, and some of us even start dancing, which would be Randy, and then the rest of us join in too. <laughs> and so we just have a great time together, and before we know it, the dishes are done, and um, we're visiting again, and we end this, the celebration with dessert. So that's why we call it the Festival of Cleanup. Roseanne's favorite part. Well, we've been doing this together now as a family, a decision we made as a priority, and one of the beauties of starting when your child is five is watching them grow up and now be 18 in another uh, month and a half, and uh, to see what's the result of the decision we've made. Instead of me giving the report, I thought uh, our son David would tell you what it's been like for him. As my dad had said, uh, we've been meeting around the table ever since we were little, and in fact, I can't even remember a time when we ever actually had dinner as a family. And he's correct in saying it has had an enormous impact on my life. We belong and we matter to our families. Our voices are heard and we celebrate each other at the table. Now, growing up in a pastor's home can be tough. Often the father and the mother are so busy taking care of all the people in the church that the tendency normally is for them to forget about their families. But at our house, the table is a place that we come together 
every day, and we share life in the most powerful way. Now, don't let your kids tell you that they don't want to have family dinners. They may just be testing you to see if you really believe what you're saying. So be the parent. Now, it's understandable that they may be afraid that they might be scolded for what they share at the table. But if you promise not to, they, while they may not voice it to you, they're probably going to be pretty excited to share their day with you. Now, most people who know me now and know me today may not uh, realize that maybe I was a little bit shyer than I am now. But before we started having dinner as a family, I wasn't quite as outgoing and as confident as I am. Knowing those people that you care about most in the world actually care about how your day and your life is going makes all the difference in the world. Now, all four of us kids have had the fondest and greatest memories at the table. And we certainly won't wait 15 years like my dad did to institute this into our household and bring our friends and family to the table. So, bon appetit and via la convivium. <laughs> Uh, I saw in the news this week a, um, a story uh, about a middle-aged school kid. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but there's a lot of teenagers, even in San Antonio, and now even middle schoolers, who are engaging in this uh, very dangerous experience called uh, huffing. I don't know if you know what huffing is, but basically they're going out and buying aerosol cans. You know those cans with aerosol in them, and they have the little red straw that you stick in, and they're inhaling it to get high. And uh, this week on the news, there was a middle school boy that was taught how to huff uh, by one of his friends on the school bus, and so he did it and got high. And then his second attempt, he did it in his room while he was alone. And the next morning, his parents came into the room and found their son dead with that little red straw sticking out of his mouth. Columbia University released a study uh, not too long ago to try to come alongside of parents and give them advice on what would help our kids from engaging in these kinds of activities that harm them. Smoking and doing drugs and abusing alcohol and joining gangs and getting pregnant. And uh, after this extensive research, Columbia University concluded that if you only had one thing, mom, dad, that you did, the one thing that would be the best deterrent from your kids getting involved in these kinds of activities was to have dinner together as a family at least five nights a week. Now you say, what does chicken fried steak and mashed potatoes have to do with abusing drugs? And the answer is actually obvious when you think about it. Teenagers, children desire to belong. And when they belong to your family undeniably, when they have a seat at your table, they don't go out looking for it elsewhere. But whenever they don't find that sense of belonging, they'll even, because they're knowledgeable, they're not stupid, they know that these things will hurt them, will get them into trouble, but they long to belong so much. Hear me well, parents. The desire to belong is even greater than the fear of dying. The desire to belong is even greater than the fear of dying. So you can't just say to your kids by sticking your bony index finger into their chest, don't do drugs, don't smoke, don't join a gang, because as we say in Texas, that dog won't hunt. You need to provide the alternative for them. You need to provide a place 
of belonging, a place where they know they have a seat at your table. And this will provide the best possible incentive to kill the desire to hang out with others who do those kinds of things. Here's my simple challenge to you. If you are not currently experiencing the convivium, I invite you to do it, but I warn you there is a learning curve. For those of you who are already uh, engaging in the convivium five nights a week, my challenge to you is to invite some folks over, like a single mom and her kids, or someone in your neighborhood that desperately needs the experience. If you're an empty nester, like Roseanne and I are fast becoming here in the next couple months, uh, uh, I encourage you that you never outgrow the table and use the experience that you've had to invite your grandkids, like we are with our one-year-old granddaughter getting started not at the age of five or 13, but at the age of zero. If you're single, you say, oh, this has been a great talk for the family, you need family too. Invite some other single folks over, married folks, do a potluck and experience the power of the convivium. Uh, back when we were living in Chicago, uh, my son Austin and his good friend Paul Bremenauer reached out to an unchurched kid named Steve. Uh, Steve, uh, 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 through their influence, uh, crossed the line of faith and became a Christ follower. And uh, as our kids have been uh, known to do, as they, uh, they invited Steve to our table. So that night we had a big spread of pasta on the table, and uh, we all sat down for a meal, and, and uh, Steve sat in this chair over here, and everyone sat in their places. And uh, so I turned after all the things were said and done, and uh, Austin began to share his day, and he rated it, and Jennifer, then Roseanne. And finally we came to Steve, 15-year-old boy. And I said, so Steve, how was your day? And Steve began to share his day. And he kept sharing and sharing and sharing. He wouldn't let go of his turn. And I couldn't figure out why. Then it dawned on me. Oh, my goodness. Steve is sitting in the exact same chair I sat 30 years ago. And I know why he doesn't want to give it up because he's experiencing what I experienced when I sat in that same seat. And the vision that I prayed that day had come true. 30 years later, I was sitting in the seat of my father-in-law and I had my wife and my children and Jesus had been invited to the table, and the cycle was repeating itself all over again. Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, he's saying it to all of us today, every single person hearing these words, here I am, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. God can do the same thing for you. Right now, he is knocking at your door. But he's not just knocking at your door, he's calling out your name. And if you were to dare open the door and invite him in, he'll come in and he will share dinner with you. And you know what I've discovered? I've discovered whenever Jesus shows up, everyone in striking distance of his presence is impacted and changed.